Welcome to The Deal with Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm Joel Whipperfirth, Digital Transformation Lead for Winfield United. And I'm John Zook, Agronomist for Winfield United. On today's episode, we'll be diving into the world of in-season tissue testing. We'll discuss the importance of tissue sampling, what nutrients that we need to monitor, and how to deal with any of the deficiencies that we find. So John... What are the benefits of tissue testing? Well, Joel, I'm glad you started off with that question. So a lot of the benefits of tissue testing allow you to get a snapshot of what that crop is experiencing. So most of the time, we'll do fertility test or soil test, and we'll forget about, well, geez, how does that crop extract those nutrients from the soil? The tissue test is going to allow you to get a snapshot of how that crop is seeing those nutrients that you applied. So, John, I think about the spring that we went through this year, and and certainly uh, crops got in in a really wide planting window because of the weather that was handed out, prevent plant going across the country. What's a good time that you should have taken a couple tissue samples by now already, right? Well, so... What crop are we talking about, Joel? <laughs> well, so let's start with the broad row crop. Let's start with corn. So corn, my timing, I like to take three tissue samples, sometimes maybe even four, but if you had to have one, you should have taken it between V5 and V8, if you had to have one. And the reason I say one is because that's really the one that we can do something with, right? We can make an application. But I do like to look at that V12 through V15 timing and then at tassel time. And the reason at tassel is because that's when we switch to go back and take an ear leaf sample. And that ear leaf is going to be a really good predictor of what the outcome of yield could be because how efficient that ear leaf is feeding that ear. Okay, so those are be my three timings in the broadleaf crop, the corn. Okay, so I think about tissue sampling as a diagnostic tool, and we've got a number of diagnostic tools available. Oftentimes, I like to lead off at looking at imagery, and given its weather forecast right now says that it's an El Nino year, which often offers us some cool and cloudy weather. Well, John, you know, as a technology guy, cloudy weather, it's really tough for those satellites to see through clouds. So can we use tissue sampling alternatively or in addition to being able to see imagery to to look for issues? So we might not have imagery. And if we do have imagery, it might not be that great or it might not be timely. Okay. So tissue sampling is still super important. And I think when we think about tissue sampling, we still have to go back to a lot of times when we use it, we go, okay, let's go to the problem spot and take a tissue sample. Most of the time when I think about tissue sample, I want to go to a couple spots within the field. So whether it's a high yielding spot, a medium yielding, or a low yielding. If we have imagery, we have the ability to see that in season, but we always have historical data most of the time on the field, whether it's historical yield data, whether it's historical image data, to get enough of a gauge to go back and say, here are three kind of zones within the farm or two zones that I can go high, low, tell me the worst and tell me the best. And that's how I'd really start with my tissue sampling at those critical time points, because that would give me a really good gauge for, like I said, the worst and the best in the farm. And then how do I dial in my management? practice to fit those needs. You know, John, you're talking all about (laughs) tissue sampling and timely tissue sampling, but I take soil samples. How's, and and I take soil samples, you know, grid samples or zone samples. A lot of times I try to lay those over the yield zones. When you take tissue samples, what's different about the soil sample that I send to the lab and the tissue sample that I send to the lab? How, How are those processes different? Well, so soil sample we send to the lab and typically what they would do is they'd send it to the lab, they grind it up, they dry it out, 
and they test for things like organic matter, cation exchange capacity, phosphorus, potassium, pH, and really those are going to be the critical parts of the test that we're going to look at. So that really tells us, here's what we're seeing that we have to change or do in the soil. The rest of the tests that you can see, maybe from the soil test, are good indicators. Maybe a fuel tank, it tells you how much you have, but really doesn't tell you how much you're going to get. And so the tissue sample would say, great, you have this much potassium, but here's how much you're getting in the plant. This is what you're seeing. So the tissue test would bring you to the place where now you can see, like I said, that snapshot, or you got a fuel gauge to say how much you have. When you send a tissue sample in, you're taking, say, 35 to 50 plants, leaves of the uppermost collar leaf and corn, crumbling it in a softball-sized ball, and that softball-sized ball is turning into a little tiny little teaspoon, tablespoon, between a teaspoon and a tablespoon portion of ground powder, okay? And that is tested very similar to the way your soil is tested just into that ground powder form. So we're doing similar extraction, but differently because we're looking at the soil and how big your fuel tank is versus your gauge, your fuel gauge. So, you know, in recent years, we've worked hard on being able to take all of the data from the tissue samples and derive a database that's given us some key insights. And when we started tissue sampling, we looked at nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus content, and then we kind of rolled into the micronutrients and the micronutrient hierarchy. But more recently, we've started to look at this really interesting ratio of nitrogen to sulfur and nitrogen to potassium. How have you used the nitrogen to sulfur ratio at this time of year when the crop is kind of mid-season? So... Most of the time, right now, when we're mid-season, we got grand growth is rapidly. If we're not almost finishing grand growth, we're right under the peak of grand growth. We're, we're taking up as many nutrients as we possibly can. And the many nutrients is the biggest one would be nitrogen, right? So we can have as much nitrogen as we need in the soil, and it'll come up in the plant via potassium. But if we don't have the sulfur there to turn that nitrogen into something, to turn it into a protein, to turn it into a plant component, nitrogen isn't useful anymore. So that's where our nitrogen to sulfur ratio comes into play is because we need the sulfur there to take the oxygens off the nitrogen, turn it into the nitrogen form that the plant can then use to make proteins. And so sulfur, I always say, is the blowtorch that cuts the oxygens off the nitrate. Because we, we think of nitrogen in the soil, nitrate, it's mobile. Yeah, it gets into the plant. But now we got to make it immobile so we can start making proteins out of it. So in that sense, I always think of there's probably about three reasons that corn plants are yellow, nitrogen, oxygen, sulfur. And did you have any others that, that make it yellow? Uh, nope, that's it. Okay, so nitrogen, oxygen, sulfur. So it's actually in the NutraSolutions workflow where we start taking tissue samples. This last year, we added something where you can start the NutraSolutions workflow in R7 tool, and you can actually place a sample utilizing satellite image. Now, this has been one of the things that's troubled satellite imagery for all these years, is people would always like to say, well, if the area has less biomass, it needs nitrogen. And that's just not always the case. Sometimes it doesn't need more nitrogen. Sometimes it needs more sulfur or sometimes the, tile. The, the ground's a little bit stale and needs some tile. But starting with that base decision tool of an image helps us get an assessment of a good, better, and best area to go tissue sample from. And in the NutraSolutions workflow, we let you drop a pin. And then when the intern or you, know, you go to the field with your tissue sample bag and your mobile device, you can guide yourself to that pin, scan the QR code in the tissue sample bag, and now now, 
we've got a digital record of that tissue sample. So I think this is that right mix of technology and agronomy that we want to be able to do the tissue sample diagnostic, but a tissue sample can be made so much more when it's digital. Well, so try not to fall out of my chair here, but Joel, how did we ever connect a geo-reference point to a tissue sample ever before, before this? You had to scan it in the physical spot that you took the sample. Which, as it happens, a lot of times the workflow in that instance was when you scan the bag, that was where it took the GPS point from. And it turns out, just hypothetically speaking, some of the interns may have been taking enormous amounts of tissue samples from Dairy Queen. So they were scanning the samples after they were taken. Right, in the Dairy Queen parking lot, which <clears throat> didn't give us the right field information. But now, when you're pre-placing that point and then tracking where that intern went, now you've got an opportunity to make that a digitally representative sample. So free cookie dough blizzards for everyone? <laughs> Maybe we should include that in the Solutions program for next year. So for me, though, this is data tracking. Because, I mean, as an agronomist, I can put a point in the field wherever I want, and we can go out and walk to that point, take a tissue sample, and I don't have to have the baggage of trying to scan the sample, trying to carry it across the field with however means I am. I can take the sample, go back to my truck, match it up with that pin, digitally connect them, and it's going to follow that field all the way through the rest of the tools and criteria. Right. And so what happens from there, when you send it to the lab, that app is also sending data to the lab via the data silo. And the data silo is this trusted place for data to live that is farmer's data that oftentimes the farmers are giving the retailer the ability to use or augment the data on their behalf. I always find farmers say, well, I want my data in a trusted spot, and I would only give it to people that I trust. And, you know, at the same time, I don't really want to be the person doing the data. I've got better things, more valuable things to do with my time. And so the data silo allows that trusted retail advisor to be enacted as the person who can move the data around on the farmer's behalf with the farmer's permission. So the tissue sample goes to the lab, data comes back into data silo, and then that data can flow back into your tool. It can flow back into the R7 tool. The data can flow also into a crop model, which field forecasting tool is calibrated by these tissue samples. Have you had some experience calibrating these tissue samples in field forecasting tool? Yeah, so the biggest thing is if you don't have in-season imagery and you don't have the ability to, say, scout all your fields as timely as you need to, what more better do you have to have a tissue sample that goes in the crop model that you can calibrate back and say, ah, this crop model is maybe a little wonky. Let's go take a tissue sample in the spot that I think is good or bad and get a feel for how that yield might change. And so that's a huge value. And I guess that's my experience is being able to put those tissue samples in. And before it was awkward and bulky because it's like, ah, tissue samples aren't showing up. How do I know which ones are going in? Are they connected to the right field? Now we can drop that pin, put it right to where we want, and we can get them through in that tool. So I think that field forecasting is probably going to be one of the bigger players here as we get through the rest of the season, watching this crop harvest out, getting some good calibration data underneath. And then what about nitrogen management and late season management? So we've talked about data, 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 flow, flow, throw, but we're supposed to talk about in-season tissue sampling insights and what we're finding in the field, okay? So we kind of went on this little path, but I mean, what are some of the what are some of the things we're seeing deficiencies that we should be watching out for during that grand growth stage in corn? 
you know, when we talk about a, a nutrient hierarchy, obviously you start with nitrogen, potassium, and then phosphorus. So those are the big three. You want to pay attention to those nitrogen to sulfur ratios, nitrogen to mm-hmm. potassium ratios, because those are the big pieces. You've got to get the macronutrients right in there. Now, when it comes to the micronutrients, we've continued to see zinc trending as one of the things that corn tends to be deficient in. So obviously, you you know, what did you experience this year in southern Minnesota around zinc? So we have a better way of tracking our data now. So I'm going back into the data. But really, what I've seen for the past six or seven years, looking at, say, the immediate area, so some I states, looking at South Dakota, southern Minnesota, and a little bit of Wisconsin, about 89.3% of the yeah, time, about. right? It's pretty specific. Um, we're seeing zinc deficiency from that V5 to V10 timeframe. So I look at V5 to V10, and you mentioned elemental prominence in the nutrient hierarchy. That's when I care about zinc. So if you're past that in your crop V5 to V10 and you're seeing a zinc deficiency and you didn't take care of it earlier, you probably have guided yourself away from that elemental prominence standpoint. And that's probably not the nutrients you should be concerned about. So between V5 and V8 to V10, zinc should be the main concern. So most of the time when people hear me talk or I'm out in the countryside, I'll talk zinc, zinc, zinc. But that's because that's when the timing, it's about a timing issue, okay? Yeah, so that brings up a good question. You know, we talked a little bit about field forecasting tool taking into account nitrogen, water, potassium. And when you look at that, what other nutrient deficiencies affect yield potential? So all of them, right? All nutrient deficiencies can affect yield potential if severe enough and if they happen at the right timing. So the model is only going to take into account what we're modeling. Everything else that the model looks at is saying, hey, we're expecting this to for you to manage it and be normal. And what I see in the zinc deficiencies is a lot of times if I add more zinc to the plant, I'm getting more potassium, I'm getting more nitrogen, I'm getting more phosphorus, and I'm getting all those macronutrients into the plant more. And to add more macros, I added more zinc because zinc is bringing them into the plant. So that's about keeping those other macros sufficient as well throughout the growing season. So every year when we do this crop model, John, one of the things that we see is the yield predictions versus their yield actual. And anything that falls as an outlier off of that trend line, that's one of the things that is still on the edge of crop modeling. Now, we're using machine learning to bring that model back into true and continue to calibrate that model. But that's one of the things that a tissue sample might be able to call out that the crop model misses. The the crop model is assuming that phosphorus is fine, right? The crop model is assuming that zinc is fine, that all the micronutrients are in good condition. But the tissue sample is really the only place that you can go to look at the sufficiency levels in the plant. How do they come about finding the sufficiency ranges for these micronutrients and tissue samples? Okay, so that sometimes becomes a pretty broad question that we got to dig a little deeper on. And so that comes from a few of the later publications, Mills and Jones to be exact. And going back in the publications, there's different ranges that have been identified for each one of the nutrients. And so these ranges were kind of developed off of the visual deficiency symptoms But what we found and what we know is once you see a visual deficiency in the crop, it's probably too late to do anything. You might be able to fix it, but you've probably already affected yield to the extent that it's probably too late to change it, okay? You might be able to stop that and carry on from where you're at, but the yield is already lost. So what the NutraSolutions tool, and this is why it's important to use NutraSolutions, is we use ranges that are a little bit more aggressive than when you see the average visual deficiency in hopes that we can predict a deficiency that's yet to happen or something that would say, hey, 
you're dipping lower than we would like to see normally. So maybe if we fix this one, we're less to see a visual symptoms, which then we know can affect yield. So it's a more aggressive approach to managing that crop. So again, it's not about going and taking a tissue sample on why is my corn yellow? We maybe know the three reasons why it's yellow, right? We want to take a tissue sample on why is my corn green and how do I manage it through the rest of the season effectively? So I think that's an interesting shift there. I mean, when we use imagery, we're using every plant as a sensor. And what you're telling me is when I'm driving 55 miles an hour down the road, my tendency is to look over at the yellow corn and go, what could I have done? But what you're actually shifting me over to here is you should be looking at the green corn and wondering what the hidden nutrient deficiency is in there. Yep. And and then even we always talk about, hey, what more can we add? But what maybe can you add a little less of, right? Or what is too much? And so that's where the N to K, N to S ratios, we talked a little bit about them. That's where they really come into play. And on that tissue sample report, they're going to be blatantly shown there to say, hey, here's where your sweet spot's going to be based on that crop stage in corn. Now let's zoom it in. Because a lot of times the answer to yellow corn, Joel, whether it's water or whether it's sulfur is just, hey, I need more nitrogen. Well, we can spend a lot of money on nitrogen and still have yellow corn if we're not fixing it the right way. And for those farmers out there that have irrigation, I always find that tissue sampling is, that's a favorite place to tissue sample because they oftentimes have the opportunity to fertigate, to irrigate on nutrients. And it's always interesting to take a tissue sample, even in those cases, week to week, because you can apply nitrogen one week and then watch the potassium number crash out the next week because that plant is utilizing all that. So talk a little bit about the fertigation experience when you're tissue sampling. So I think the fertigation experience allows you to kind of, and I'd say you should probably set yourself on a weekly tissue sample at that point, and then guide your applications of fertigation based on that tissue sample, primarily on N to K and S. And I've had a little bit of experience in doing that. And when I'm just putting nitrogen through fertigation, plain nutrient, I can see my N to S and N to K ratios just go way out of whack. I start adding in a little sulfur with that nitrogen, maybe a little soluble potassium, and now I can guide them into the right scenario. And in some cases, I've seen some pretty good yields coming off of those areas. I mean, sometimes I don't even want to say it, but I mean, I've seen like 35, 40 bushel just by keeping in tune with those N to K N ratios. And that's just maximizing overall potential. And then we're not talking about pounds of nutrients. We're talking... I mean, maybe it's pounds, but it's pounds over a week, just slow guiding into those ranges. And so that's when you can maximize potential. So we're not putting on 70 more pounds of N, we're maybe only putting on 30 more pounds of N and five pounds of sulfur and maybe 10, 20 pounds of potassium. And we're pulling that out of the upside broadcast approach and moving that into more of the fertigation in-season management practices. As a side note, didn't you send me a text the other day of what the plant demand per day per acre was uh, and some visual of that? Yeah, that was calculated very <laughs> critically. I don't, I forget. I you got to pull out your phone and look at look that text I got to look back at my text message. messages here and see what that thing was. You don't text was. that often, so it should be right at the top. Yeah. But yeah, no, so I was thinking on this idea was how do we feed that crop in season and can we put as many nutrients as we need on a little per day uptake band. And I forget what the exact number was, but it wasn't that much. It didn't take much to change that. Okay. So here's deep thoughts from John Zuck. Let's see. This was... uh, You're going to use this against me now. Yeah. This was sent late in the evening hours. To get 280 bushels worth of NPK sulfur and zinc to each one corn plant, you would only need to apply 0.0 
1.1752 pounds. If it's done three times, you'd, of course, you know, only need 0.003917 pounds. And so when we talk about moonshots and Google and the X Prize, they always think about 10X. Uh, you have to do something that's 10X. And so in this thought process, you know, John was challenging me to think in terms of 10X of feeding each corn plant every day versus putting it all out in October and then waiting till the season to grow next. What do you think the future of tissue sampling holds? So I think the future of tissue sampling is maybe we can get to the point of like, hey, can we sample every acre, right? But I don't know if that's where we want to go because that's more labor intensive. It's more costly. It's not necessarily, it doesn't give us any better information. I think the future of tissue sampling is taking some key spots in the field, putting it into a model that can help us predict what broadly can happen so we can manage that crop on a more operationally, effectively manner. And that all comes to how good is a model? Can we predict, Joel, off of my calculations, what a 280 bushel corn crop needs at that specific timing? And tissue samples can get us to that snapshot point or that specific timing and say, here's what you're lacking. This is what you need. So the calculation then now goes back. And the model isn't just some fancy algorithm. The model is based off of legitimate research that we've done in corn in fertigated, unfertigated, all the way across different soil types to help say, here's how many nutrients are getting into the plant and here's how the yield is calculated through. Yeah, and that's actually when we look at field forecasting tool, field forecasting tools model is calibrated to the nitrogen and potassium levels in the plant. And so you talked about these sufficiency ranges of crop nutrient elements in the tissue sample. Field forecasting tool is actually the first one that has calibrated that sufficiency range back to yield. And now it's parameterized inside of this model. But we're one of the first companies that actually has made that tissue sample range actually mean something from a predictive value on what action you should take. Oh, by the way, economics, hey, I know corn is trending up today when we were recording this, but knowing what that optimal input per bushel of output is, is a critical phase. And being able to know that it's, you know, it's, hey, 10 bucks an acre for application, nitrogen is 50 cents a pound or somewhere in there, you know, and being able to get those economics when you're making the decision, that's a critical point. So the last thing on this green corn versus yellow corn conversation, and I mean, again, let's not tissue sample the yellow corn. Let's tissue sample the green corn. But the last thing I got to always add here is most of the time it's, hey, I got yellow corn. Let's put more nitrogen to make it greener. But have you ever thought of, hey, got really green corn? Mine corn is greener than the neighbor's. How much, too much nitrogen did I put down? So did I spend $40 an acre on too much nitrogen where I could have maximized the potential of the yield on maybe another application, whether that's a fungicide, a micronutrient, or whatever else that might be. So most of the time, our green corn needs to be managed a little bit more readily than some of the yellow corn. So John, at the beginning of this, you asked me, well, what's the big deal of making the tissue sample data, uh, you know, digital? And the big deal is you not only can walk that tissue sample through tracking geospatially, you can calibrate it to a model, and that model leads to you making an output decision of what you should put out there. And now that output decision 
can also be tracked through data silo using the True Terra Insights engine that would also give you a score on your nitrogen use efficiency. And this is taking into account how many pounds of nitrogen per bushel you're using out there and suggesting which farming practices might help you advance more sustainably, whether that be through cover crop or using a nitrogen stabilizer. And that's the reason to be digital, because we're all trying to do the best with what we have and trying to sustainably financially produce as well as trying to do what's right for the environment and that. And I think this is where digitizing your tissue sample and digitizing the data that you're using on the farm, enabling your trusted retail advisor to utilize data silo to bring those pieces all together, that's the new lens on tissue sampling and in-season management that we haven't had before. So this all goes back to the same philosophy that we started when we started doing precision agriculture, and it's measuring before we can manage. So you got to have a measurement before you can start to make adjustments in the field. And this tissue sample through the data silo and, and connecting up these points allows you to sustainably measure your practices so you can make adjustments and become economically and environmentally more capable at managing that acre. All right, John. So, you know, when we look at using every plant as a sensor, that's the goal of satellite imagery, use every plant as a sensor. The overarching rule is he who photosynthesizes wins. What other nutrients are we missing for photosynthesis to be complete? So I think we got to look at Number one, when the maximum photosynthesis is occurring in that plant. And for corn, it's probably going to be from that V12-ish to tassel time is where we're going to have vegetation growth going on. And we're going to be trying to maximize as much photosynthesis as we can just because extreme vegetation growth. And so that key nutrient, it's a micro, would be manganese. So manganese has a two plus charge. Manganese is really good for transferring those electrons from the photosynthesis process and creating more energy and making that photosynthesis process more efficient so that plant can build in vegetation and stay green so we don't glow chlorotic and we're able to maximize the potential there. So manganese would be critical during that time frame of photosynthesis for a corn plant. Soybeans, though, soybeans photosynthesize mainly when they're after flowering during pod set. So if I was going to apply manganese on any crop, it would probably be soybeans. And that would be probably from the R2 to R4 time frame, just because soybeans need to photosynthesize as their pod filling, whereas corn is kind of hard to operationally get that manganese on in time. So certainly our soils have some manganese in them, but you know a lot of the foliar micronutrients tend to blend in together the best or the most needed micronutrients of all of those. So if I've got a tissue sample that is only deficient in manganese, should I apply max in ZMB or should I just apply manganese? So that's kind of a question that you got to look at based on number one, your crop. But if you are only deficient in manganese, I would say, hey, that's the beauty of taking a tissue test. Apply the nutrient that you're deficient on. Doesn't mean that the other nutrients like zinc, manganese, and boron aren't important, but time it. So we got elemental prominence and nutrient hierarchy. So time it with that crop and the right timing. So Joel, if you take a tissue sample at V13 on your corn and it's manganese deficient, nothing else, you should just put manganese on. 
if it's showing other deficiencies, take manganese as being the most important of those. And maybe if you can get a micronutrient product that has other nutrients in it that hit the other needs, that would be okay too. But I'd target what that timing of the crop is based on what my nutrient recommendation would be. So the beauty of the tissue test of NutraSolutions though, is when you get those results, it actually categorizes those to the most important nutrient on top. So it kind of takes that thinking out of the game a little bit, whereas you say, hey, this is the priority. Let's go down the list from there and see what else we can hit. So you mentioned uh, the timing and, you know, tassel maybe hitting different parts of the country now. Maybe tassels are just around the corner for you. That brings on timing for fungicide season, but it also brings on a time when we actually shift where we tissue sample from the newest leaf down to the ear leaf. Now, as you look at that ear leaf, the leaf attached to the ear, of course, during the pollination time frame, we tend to see a lot of boron deficiencies. What's so important about boron during that fungicide tassel timing application? So boron is most important in reproductive parts. So what the corn plant does is it moves the boron to the tassel and to the silks. So basically, the rest of your vegetation on that corn plant goes deficient in boron. Well, boron's side job when it's when the plant isn't reproducing is to take carbohydrates or photosynthates and transfer those photosynthates to the stalk so the stalk can move those photosynthates up and down and feed the rest of the plant. So I say boron is the car that travels the dirt roads or the leaves and brings it to the main highway or the stalk where then potassium can move those photosynthates through the plant. So if the rest of your plant, your vegetation matter is deficient in boron, you're inefficient at photosynthesizing during that reproduction production time. Yeah. So that reproduction time or, you know, when we get after tassel, I always think about the leaves as the wings of the warehouse and you've got all these stored nutrients that need to be moved into the central loading dock, which is the ear. Yep. So boron is kind of an interesting micronutrient. It's mobile in the soil and slightly mobile in the plant, whereas most other micronutrients are not mobile in the soil and not mobile in the plant. So two weeks after tassel or two weeks after flowering, the boron disperses through the rest of the plant, and now you're sufficient in boring. And so we just get this little flash. So most of the time, what I'll do when we're doing a fungicide application is we'll put a little boron in with that fungicide application and take care of that flash to hopefully maximize photosynthesis. And a lot of times, that'll give us a little bit more tip, Phil. You've been listening to the Deal with Yield podcast. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us online or on your podcast app. And for more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com.